Welcome to the South Fellowship Church Podcast. Here at South Fellowship, we exist to help people live in the way of Jesus with the heart of Jesus. Wherever you're listening from today, we hope you're encouraged by this week's message. I just have to wait for the music to give you resolution. There we go, we're done. Uh, If you're visiting, my name's Alex, I'm one of the pastors here. It's great to have you joining us. We're in this sermon series that is called Ordinary Time. If you're unfamiliar with the church calendar, ordinary time is a big chunk uh, of that time. We have the church seasons, which are not necessarily seasons that we process in the world around us. There's Advent. Uh, that is the beginning, it leads up to Christmas. There's Lent and then there's Easter uh, through to Pentecost. It follows through on these big themes like God is with us at Advent. God is for us. This is the death and crucifix- the crucifixion, death and resurrection of Jesus. Um, and then Pentecost, God is in us. The, the, the Christian faith has this strong claim that when you follow Jesus, God dwells within you. That's what we believe. And then this idea that God works through broken, messed up, strange people like you and I, and he does it repeatedly in the world uh, around us. And so during this season of ordinary time, uh, we chose to follow something called the lectionary. Lectionary is a document, a couple of hundred years old, that pieces together bits of God's story in scripture. So, so there's a good chance that as you go around, you'll, you'll encounter in three years almost every part of the Bible. So a way of picturing it might be like this. If you've ever been to New York on the subway, you know that there's all these different lines that go all of these different places. And some of them are places that you go regularly. So somewhere like Times Square and 42nd Street is like a a regular stop off. About four different lines go through there. It's right next to the famous Grand Central Station. That, that, That station's used all the time. And then other stations, they Uh, kind of like go just to, one line goes to them and and people don't go to them unless that's where they're ending up. Jamaica up on the orange line is always one of those that's intrigued me. You see all these trains going to Jamaica and if you're new to New York, you're like, I didn't know you could get a train from New York to Jamaica. That seems like a long way. Um, And then you realize it's not the country, of course. I'm just joking. I never thought that for a second. Um, But this kind of gives us a picture of how the lectionary works. We figure out there's all these passages that that connect with all of these other different areas of scripture. So what I'm hoping you'll see today is is even if you're new to the Bible, there's maybe four or five different passages will drop in at all these random seemingly places. Genesis chapter 28, Romans chapter eight, where we'll spend most of our time. Matthew 13 and Jesus parable there. Psalm 139 somehow are all interconnected with each other in this wonderful way. But what I, what I hope happens for each of us during the season that's known as ordinary time is that somehow perhaps God catches us by surprise. Because it's pretty easy to land on a season like Christmas, to go on Christmas Eve to a service and say, God, are you there? Like, might you kind of show me something about you? It's pretty easy to go on Easter when you're thinking about crucifixion and resurrection to think, God, like, how, how might you talk to me in my life? But this is just everyday, normal life. So it's like those moments as a family, if you are doing something you know, with friends, as a couple, uh, with a wider family, where, where you think, we're going to make this amazing moment. It's going to be spectacular. And sometimes it is. And then sometimes the most spectacular moments are the moments that you just didn't plan for at all. And suddenly you think, wow, I will remember that forever. That caught hold of me, and, and I'll never perhaps 
Forget it. The writer Mark Iaconelli says this, there are moments, often unexpected, where you find yourself at home in your own life. Where you just suddenly have this revelation, like, oh, this feels good right now. And perhaps those moments where God catches us by surprise are exactly those moments. Just in a moment, like this is how life is supposed to be lived. This is God and I living life together, and it feels wonderful. So as we get into this week, I have a thesis that's very inelegantly written out here as we get into this second passage of Paul's Romans chapter 8. It looks like this. How you see God, like how you understand God, how you believe he sees you, and how you believe he sees this world around us will affect how you live life with and for God. Let me read it again. How you see God, how you believe he sees you and me, how you believe he sees this world that we live in right now, will affect how you live life with and for God. So we're going to, as a community, read the second part of Romans chapter 8. If you'd like to stand with me, if you're able, uh, for the reading of God's word. And I will read from verse chapter 12. And as I said last week, this is like, this is one of those passages of scripture that you're just like, this is just, this is stunningly written. I would love to be able to write for, like this. Therefore, brothers and sisters, we have an obligation, but it is not to the flesh to live according to it. For if we live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live. For those who are led by the Spirit of God are the children of God. The Spirit you receive does not make you slaves so that you live in fear again, but the Spirit you receive brought about your adoption to sonship. And by him we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are children, God's children. And now if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ, if indeed we share in his sufferings, in order that we may share in his glory. I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. For the creation waits in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it in hope. That the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and glory of God's children. We know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. Not only so, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption to sonship, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved, but hope that is seen is no hope at all. Who hopes for what they already have? But if we hope for what we do not have, we wait for it patiently." God, as we get into this deep text, would you speak to us? Uh, and would you be transformative in our lives? Would you teach us what we need to know and help us to learn to follow you in new ways? Amen. Please take a seat. Uh, so if uh, you remember last week, for those of you who are here, let me catch you up. We got into this first part of Romans chapter 8, and, and we really got no further than verse 
one. We really stuck in there for most of the time. And, and some people do that all the time. Some people, as preachers, can just do that verse-by-verse verse thing. The famous G. Campbell Morgan at Westminster Chapel in London, he was there for two sections of his life, and then he took a 14-year gap in between where he was working in Los Angeles. And so in, in the first section, like he finished maybe 1919 or something like that, and he was reading Romans chapter 6, verse 5 as his text, uh, and then he went to Los Angeles for 14 years was asked to come back to the church and that first week picked up the Bible and said taking up from where I left off 14 years ago we're going to start on Romans chapter 6 verse 6 like some people can do that every week uh, but th- that, that's not me so much the, the reason we spent so much time here is, th- is this tiny little word therefore at the beginning an even smaller Greek word ara which simply means like take into account everything that I've told you before to understand Romans chapter 8 verse 1 we really need to understand Romans chapter 1 through 7 and almost that word means it follows that it's a terrifying word in an argument with a spouse or with a friend or with a parent it's like it can be that sense of like you've done all of these different things and now these are the consequences of everything that you've done in that case it's very negative in this case it was far more positive. It was that sense of like, because God has done this, then you should live like this. This writer, Paul, he does this all the time. Like the, the academic phrase is indicative and imperative. Because God has done this, then you should be these kinds of people. It's like, can be quite kind of positive, and it was last week. In verse 12, where we start today, it's the same word. This time, when you read it, maybe it comes across as a little bit more negative. This is Paul being Paul. This is Paul going for the jugular. This is Paul making his big ask in terms of how we might live. Therefore, ara, it follows that based on what God has done. No condemnation, all those things we learned last week. Brothers and sisters, we have an obligation, but it's not to the flesh. And when Paul says flesh, he doesn't usually mean physical body. He usually means something like, like the sinful nature, the messiness, the deep core in, in all of us that's kind of broken and warped. That's usually his language. To live according to it. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live. I could come across as kind of aggressive, right? That, that's a big ask. Maybe in a positive way, it's like C.S. Lewis expressed it. He, he said this, that maybe now with your help, with God's help, I will become more myself than ever. That's the dream of someone following Jesus, that somewhere you might become the person that you're supposed to be, even though you experience failure. In a couple of weeks, well, a couple of months, I guess, we're, we're starting a series on the Sermon on the Mount. All I'll say is if you're part of this community, just kind of like prepare yourself. Because I read this every day for a while to, to get ready for this series, and it messes with you. It is big, hard, difficult asks in terms of how you might live your life. And maybe this is some of where Paul is here. Therefore, brothers and sisters, we have an obligation, not to the flesh, not to live that way, the way you used to live, uh, to live according to it. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die, but if by the Spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live. Some people have read this and said that the Christian faith is centered around this idea. You should get to this point of what's called sinless perfection. You should just not get stuff wrong. John Wesley, when talking about this subject, the 18th century evangelist said, 
All believers should mind this one thing, sinless perfection, always getting it right, and continually agonize for it. Now, when you read his other writings, he didn't believe that this was something you could do. He said it was a good target. But some of his followers actually said, no, no, you can attain this idea of sinless perfection. You can never get it wrong. And so one famous preacher in England in the 19th century, Charles Haddon Spurgeon, he despised this idea. Didn't believe it was possible, and so he encountered a, a Wesleyan, someone who'd followed John Wesley, who was like, no, 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 you can live this way. In fact, this man said, I have learned to live this way. I am sinless, I live a perfect life. And Spurgeon said, I reached over and grabbed the pitcher of water that stood between us and tipped it over his head. And it was incredible how quickly that sinlessness left him because he suddenly became awfully angry at the situation. Like it's, like it only, we, we know, right? It only takes this momentary thing, this small toothache, this person tipping a pitcher of water over your head to get to a point where you act like you would wish never to act. Uh, again, I don't think this is where Paul is going. But I do think, like, like we looked at last week, where, did, did, where I'd agree with this guy, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, he is saying something like this. When all is said and done, the life of faith of following Jesus is nothing if not an unending struggle of the spirit with every available weapon against the flesh. It is this continuing journey that we regularly get wrong in all sorts of ways. In my feed on Instagram the other day, this beautiful little video appeared that defines at times my spiritual life and maybe defines yours too. So enjoy these 13 seconds of magic. Just delightful, right? It's just, you can see it coming, the change of the music and everything. It's just like that. That's what life can feel like at times. It's like, a, and Paul expressed it back in Romans chapter 7 the things that I hope never to do again, I regularly end up doing. And the things I want to do, I, I don't end up doing. Someone once said the difference in terms of animals between sheep and pigs is that pigs love being in mud and they just roll in it and enjoy it and sheep, they get into it and then they long to be cleaned off but regularly return to it. Again, the, the, the Christian life is, is the one that is resembled by the sheep, the one who longs to be clean and regularly finds that their own failings lead them far from that place of sinless perfection that Wesley was talking about. As we move on, Paul says this, for those who are led by the Spirit of God, uh, the children of God, the spirit you receive does not make you slaves so that you live in fear. Again, the point of what he is writing is not to make you fearful. It's not to say, oh my goodness, what happens if I ever get anything wrong again? I'm, I'm surely destined to some kind of eternal damnation for my own failures. No, no, that's not the point. Like Fear, it seems, will never work. That's not how the Christian life is lived. Rather, the spirit you received brought about your adoption to sonship, and by him we cry, Abba, Father. Paul describes this Christian life as this intimate relationship between a child and its parents. That, that word, Abba, is, is distinct. It's not formal. It's not father in a formal sense. It's that really intimate word, Father. Now, now we had our guest preacher, Kevin Butcher, who's a 
wonderful member of our community come and teach on just this verse just a few weeks ago. And really, like, I'm, I'm kind of like nervous to talk about it because he did such a wonderful job just unpacking all of this. But there are some elements that I think we need to understand to move on well. This term, Abba, is that very informal term for a father. Now, in actual fact, mama and papa or mama and dada, these like really informal terms for a parent, they're actually what's called onomatopoeic words. So if you've never heard that, that phrase before, it's, it's kind of important to understand. Here, here's some examples. There's like the word bam, like remember emerald back in the cooking show, whatever it was, clang, hush, moo, bark, beep. These are all onomatopoeic words. And what that means is there's a sound that was made, and we needed a word to define that sound. So the reason we need the word is that you'd sound ridiculous if in trying to describe the sound a cow makes, if every time you had to do it, you'd say, the cow went moo. Or if you said, the dog went woof, woof, woof. You need a word that is kind of like the sound to explain what you're talking about. So these words were created to be exactly that. The word moo is kind of the sound a cow makes, but it's an actual word as well. The word bark kind of sounds like the, the noise a dog makes, but it's a word. The word clang sounds like a symbol in some ways. The, the word hush has the shh at the end. It, it fits the sound that is made. Mama and dada are the same principle. Did you know mama is the informal term for mother in Swahili? It's the informal term for mama in Russia. It's the informal term for mama amongst Native American tribes. The word dada or similar ada is all over the place. It's because they're not words in themselves. They are reflections of the sounds that a kid makes when it is longing for somebody to care for it. It's not a word. It's a sound that every human being as a child has made ever. And so these similar informal terms for mother and father appear in languages that are completely disconnected from each other. We end up with the same expressions, whether it's just a little bit similar, like mama and ima, or dada or ada. There's all of these languages that all reflect this same thing, this same idea. So right now, my wife and I have a seven-month-old. And for the first time, he just said, Mama, or at least my wife says that he just said mama. But the reality is the other three have all said dada first. Her reflection on this is that I should be generous and say, well, you deserve one out of the four to say mama before it says dada. But selfishly, I want the set. So I want them all to say dada first. We're, we're in the middle of this conversation. Did he really say that? And yet, according to the linguist, linguist Lev Ospensky, he would say the baby with no particular thought is babbling his mama, mama, and the adults are interpreting it their own way. Some imagine he calls mother. Others believe he addresses his father, and yet others think he calls no one, but is simply hungry and wants to eat. They are all equally correct and are all just as equally mistaken because the word isn't the thing that matters. The expression of need for someone to care for it is the universal trait. Spiritual writers for decades have argued that the same babbling that a baby makes is a cry of a human heart for a spiritual father. 
that our need for God is somewhere is innate to us. Augustine phrased it as there's a God-shaped hole that is only filled by, by God himself. This is, this is an old idea that Paul, I think, would agree with to a point. There is this deep need for a father, an Abba, who cares for you. Now, the problem or the challenge potentially here is this. Some of us have horrible experiences of fathers and potentially mothers as well. So the word itself can be challenging. And yet what I would suggest is the need remains. And I would suggest this, that there are terrible fathers out there, but there are no terrible Abbas. The, the term Abba is expressly reserved for someone who cares, who nurtures. And this is what this father is. There's this idea that Paul opens us up to, that, that we have this father who cares for us, who is close, who longs for us. Interestingly, it doesn't seem that God's love for us is the primary, primary problem that Scripture unpacks. It's actually the opposite. It's actually our love for God, our connection with him that seems to be the problem. In the movie, The Holiday, a character called Iris Simpkins writes this, like, unpacks this idea of unrequited love. She says this, and then there's another kind of love, the cruelest kind, the one that almost kills its victims. It's called unrequited love, and of that I'm an expert. Most love stories are about people who fall in love with each other, but what about the rest of us? What about our stories, those of us who fall in love alone? We are the victims of the one-sided affair. We are the cursed, the unloved ones. We are the walking wounded, the handicapped, without the advantage of a great parking space. There's this idea of love that isn't return. And that actually seems to be Scripture's dominant argument. Not that God doesn't love humans, but that humans are incapable of loving God in return. We're the disconnected ones. We're the problem in that respect. The writer Richard Foster says this, Today the heart of God is an open wound of love. He aches over our distance and preoccupation. He mourns that we do not draw near to him. He grieves that we have forgotten him. He weeps over our obsession with muchness and manyness and longs for our presence. Paul is constantly articulating this idea. God's longing for you is ever present. His longing for me is ever present. It's the return that seems to be the problem. Second uh, of the lectionary passages for this week, Psalm 139, this beautiful Psalm of David. Where, where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to the heavens, you are there. If I make my bed in the depths, you are there. If I rise on the wings of the dawn, if I settle on the far side of the sea, even there your hand will guide me. Your right hand will hold me fast. If I say, surely the darkness will hide me and the light become night around me, even the darkness will not be dark to you. The night will shine like the day. That's the psalm that reflects what it is for God to love and nurture a human being. The beautiful picture of like, the, the dark doesn't matter to the God of the universe who longs to be an Abba to each of us. It's the kid, right, that's fearful of the dark. The parent knows the dark isn't anything to worry about. This reflects the affection from God's point of view. Even in our moments of saying the darkness will hide me, God says, no, the darkness doesn't keep me from you. Eugene Peterson says this, there comes a time when we long to live with our hearts what we already know in our heads and do with our hands. And one of the tensions we wrestled with last week is that one of the big struggles in evangelical Christianity is the, the idea that 
if we're honest, very few of us genuinely believe that we are loved by God. Very, very rarely do we believe we are accepted by God as we are and loved continually in spite of those moments where we drop into ditches that we've just been pulled from. We struggle with that idea. And yet it seems like we need it to drop from our heads to our hearts to land in that emotional spot to free us from a bunch of our baggage. Paul moves on after landing very much on this idea that we are children of God. He then says this, we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. Adds this additional clause, this idea of heirship, which in, in a modern sense is probably hard for us to understand because we have this de definite idea of what an heir is today. Uh, it makes me think of this recent event back in the homeland. The world's longest serving apprentice finally got the job he was apprenticing for, like 70 years, practicing for a job that he might just get to do for a few years. Who knows? And, and so when I was back out with, uh, there with the kids, we got to show them around uh, the palace and stuff and just drop into some of these places in London. I thought I'd just share this beautiful picture with you because we had this moment where, where we're outside and the gate opened and I'm like kids prepare yourself someone important is coming or going from the palace we knew the king was not there because the flag was the wrong flag but we're like there's, there's someone coming just prepare yourself and so we're waiting waiting as these gates open and this is the picture I took uh, as the car came in it's auto glass windshield repair, which apparently even when you live in a palace, you occasionally need your windshields replacing. And that was our big moment that we got to see this special person come in, a guy that's replacing a windshield in less than 15 minutes and probably was called 15 minutes ago. Uh, when we think about airship, we probably think about something like Charles' experience, this, like, this, this specific person is an air. It's a one-person deal. It's exclusive. And it's uncertain. Like, what if you die before the person that you're supposed to be taking over from? What, what if, like, something happens? There's this kind of, like, uncertainty to it. It's very specific, very exclusive, and it's very uncertain. That's not the kind of air that Paul is talking about here. In, in Paul's language, air is a broad term. It can be any number of people. It's the opposite of the modern sense. How many of you guys came across this book? It was a guy complaining about the fact that he wasn't really an heir to anything. He was the spare. He was the one that was there just in case something happened to the important person. That isn't Paul's understanding of what an heir is at all. It's broad. It can be anybody. You are all, I am included in this. It's for many people. And then it's, it's certain. Are there any fans out, of the, out there of the show Succession? Incredibly intriguing HBO show about a guy who on the first episode is about to hand over his multimedia conglomerate to his son. It's the fifth biggest company in the world and his son has been working for him as a vice president. And it's this moment where in the first episode he's supposed to get to take over. And his father calls everyone together and says, no, I'm not going anywhere. I'm staying. And his son says, well, how long, Dad? Like, when, when do I get to be the guy? When are you going to retire if not now? And his dad looks at him and says, I don't know, five, ten years? Maybe never? Not sure, it's my company. Like, it's, it's got this uncertain to, uh, uncertainness to it in our modern sense of air, but, but in, in Paul's language, this is a certain thing. You and I are not invited just into being children, but, but into being heirs 
with Christ. It's, it's broad. It's a certain thing that we're invited into. As we look at how Paul reflects on how God thinks of you and I, I'd like to bring us back to the original thesis that was kind of inelegantly worded and try and maybe word it for us a bit more elegantly. It seems that how you see God's heart for you will determine how you let him work in you. If your perspective is God is constantly mad at my mistakes, is sick of pulling me out of ditches, and is about to give up on me, well, that will affect your relationship with him. If your idea is that your relationship with God is uncertain, it's on rocky ground, and that he's a little bit disappointed right now, and any more mistakes, well, that, that might be the moment it's cut off then that will definitely affect whether you let him work in you at all. And, and Paul's language is there to reinforce this, this idea. No, no, you are, you are delightfully accepted. That, that song we sang, like, a, you know, a hundred billion faults disappear. A hundred billion moments of falling into ditches, they disappear in the light of the cross and who Jesus is. The moment we realize what God feels for us, suddenly our capacity to let him work in us well, that, that seems to change dramatically. If Paul stopped here, it would be kind of nice. The writer Gordon Fee even says this, this, this would be a nice place to stop. Like, this is all good news. We like all of this stuff, but unfortunately, Paul being Paul, he doesn't stop. Now, if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. If indeed we share in his sufferings in order that we may also share in his glory. I'm uncertain about my like for the word sufferings. I'd prefer he didn't talk about sufferings. And, and being a good Western Christian in the 21st century, I'm pretty convinced that there shouldn't be sufferings, right? All should be well. Life should be good. And yet Paul writes to a bunch of people that had experienced constant sufferings for their faith and would experience a couple of hundred years more of constant sufferings for their faith. There's a different expectation here. Paul himself has had these same sufferings that he talks about. I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. For the creation waits in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and glory of the children of God. What, what is Paul doing here? What is he writing about? Well, Paul is taking something very individual. He's taking your own experience. If you would say you're following Jesus, your own constant experience of, I believe God's promised things, but I'm not experiencing them all. It's his constant use of this idea of like already and not yet. And now he's about to say, do you know what? That isn't just a you thing. That's an all of creation thing. It's not you that just doesn't experience all that you are hoping right now. It's not just you that, that experiences failures when you think that you shouldn't fail. It's, it's not you that's still waiting to be like Jesus for however many decades. He's about to say, no, this is a creation problem. Everyone experiences this. We know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. Not only so, we ourselves who have the, fir who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we await for our adoption to sonship, 
the redemption of our bodies. Paul says every moment that you're like, this isn't what life is supposed to be like individually. Every moment of suffering, every moment where your knee starts to ache before you've got out of bed in the morning, which I've been told happens as you get older. I haven't experienced it myself. It's the same as creation experiences. Those moments of like, this isn't how the world should be. God, why don't you do something? When are you going to complete your work? He says, that's not just you and I that experience that. It's, it's universal. A question that maybe um, helps us unpack this that I think has floated around for a few centuries. Is the world getting better or worse? Is the world getting better or worse? How many of you would say, just out of interest, better? How many would say the world's getting better? Couple of hands, couple of brave hands, like half hands. How many of you would say it's getting worse? few more decided hands. How many of you don't like the question? <laughs> yeah, I like it. So, okay, some are like, okay, I feel like, I feel like this. You know. uh, for centuries, in actual fact, most of the Christian church has determinedly answered this way. It's getting better. If you were to go and ask an uh, evangelist, a missionary in the late 18th, early 19th century, they would have said decidedly, no, the world's getting better. It gets, gets better every day because people like us go and we bring education and we bring medicine and we, the world day by day is improving because of the church and it's going to constantly improve to the point where we're going to get it looking pretty good. That was the state of affairs. In the 19th century, 20th century, uh, the early parts of the 20th century, there were a whole bunch of secular thinkers that were like, no, the, the world is going to get to this pretty much utopian place. We're going to have one, big more, one more big war, and then everything's going to be good after that. Th that was the thinking. And then there was a revelation that, well, isn't it more complicated than that? Isn't it actually getting worse? Isn't the world becoming a worse place to live? These are some of my friends out in Haiti. This was a group I got to take to the beach for the day. And I love looking back at their expressions on their faces and wonder what they're thinking. Like, you see, like, just joy, wonder. And then, and then this guy in the back, just contemplation. Like, you, you wonder how they feel about the world that they live in and this moment in paradise, but their regular lives, like, a lot of hunger, a lot of poverty, a lot of the experiences similar to we were hearing about in Guatemala. And you look at the way people operate in that world, and you can't help but wonder if it's getting worse. While I was in Haiti, a friend was telling me about the sugar industry there. A Haitian man was able to buy the sugar industry and discovered that he could import sugar for cheaper from Brazil. So not worrying about the 30,000 people that earn their living from the sugar industry, he closed it down to import the sugar from a different place so he could make a little bit extra money. You hear stories like that and say, how can we not say it's getting worse? How can, how can we not say in the midst of a man who just wants to make more money off sugar that something isn't wrong? The writer Lisa Sharon Harper says, how did we get to a place where our neighbors have to eat dirt to survive? The stories in Haiti of mothers that took dirt and mixed it with sugar and oil simply to give their kids' stomachs the sense that there had been food in there, even though there were no nutrients in it. It's pretty easy to be pessimistic and look at the world and, and say, no, it's definitely getting worse. And even when we think we're doing good things, we, we wonder whether they were as good as 
they'd hoped. In the, the TV show, The Chef's Table, one of the chefs talks about his interactions with the tribe in the Amazon. He takes them out a gift, a 24-pack of Coca-Cola in cans. Uh, and they all enjoy the sugary drink, but when he goes back the next week, he finds the cans discarded all over their camp, just thrown into the bushes. And so he goes and yells at the tribal chief and says, like, what are you doing? You're ruining this beautiful place that God has given you. And the tribal chief got in his face and said, no, this is your fault. It's your fault because until you came along, we'd never seen anything that couldn't just be thrown away. Everything was disposable and you've brought us something that will never be disposed of. There's all these tensions in play between how missionaries have operated and how the church has operated in the world around it. It's definitely complex and so maybe some of you didn't like the question. And maybe some of you might want to say the answer to the question, is the world getting better or worse, is actually just yes. Is actually just yes. It's doing both of those things in different ways. Third lectionary passage, if you can handle another one, really quick. In Matthew 13, Jesus tells a parable, the kingdom of heaven is like a man who sowed good seed in his field. Good seed. The world is getting better. But while everyone was sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds amongst the wheat and went away. Then the wheat sprouted and formed heads. Then the weeds also appeared. It's getting worse. The owner's servants came to him, you and I, our questions, our prayers, and said, sir, didn't you sow good seed in your field? Where then did the weeds come from? It's the same question, right? Is the world getting better or worse? Where are the weeds coming from? If you sowed good things, why the weeds? And, and, and the age-old answer, an enemy did this, he replied, the servants asked him, do you want us to go and pull them up? No, because while you're pulling up the weeds, you may uproot the wheat with them. Let them grow together until the harvest. At that time, I will tell the harvesters, first collect the weeds and tie them in bundles to be burned, then gather the wheat and bring it into my barn. It's easy to read this in our modern perspective and say this is talking about people, but there's nothing that says people in it specifically. Uh, somewhere there's this idea that we look at the world and say, God, stop the bad stuff. And his answer is actually, one day, one day, one day I will, but that day isn't right now. Better or worse, who knows? But another question that maybe helps us understand this better is this tension. Is the world disposable or is it renewable? Because for a long time, the Christian church has said simply, the world is disposable. One day, God will get rid of it, so why worry about it too much at all? And yet Paul seems to hope for more in his understanding that creation groans longing for something different. In Revelation 21, we read this end for this world. But then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, look, God's dwelling place is now amongst the people and he will dwell with them. They will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. Paul has some linguistic choices when he writes this passage. When he talks about a new earth, he could pick a Greek word, neos, which just simply means brand new, never seen before, like new in time. But he doesn't. He picks another word, kainos, 
which means new of its kind, having never been seen quite this way before. When he talks about you and I, he says one day there'll be a renewal of these broken down bodies and these broken hearts. It'll still be you, but you'll be renewed. He talks about this world that we live in in the same way, with the same language. Seems this world actually matters. It's not just disposable, it's something more. Richard Raw says this, this now and not yet reign of God is the foundation for our personal hope and our cosmic optimism, both for the moments where we're in the ditch and our hopes for this world and our aching for it. But it is also the source of our deepest alienation from the world as it is. It will leave us as strangers and nomads on this earth. Our task is to learn how to live in both worlds until they become one world. When we experience those moments of saying, God, what's with me? Fix me, would you? And we experience those moments of saying, God, what's with this world? Fix this world, would you? Same tension in play. In both situations, what we seem to need is, is hope. And that's where Paul finishes in verse 24. For in this hope we were saved, but hope that is seen is no hope at all. Who hopes for what they already have? But if we hope for what we do not yet have, we wait for it patiently. How you see God's heart for you will determine how you let him work in you, just as how we see God's heart for his world will determine how we serve God in his world. How is God speaking to you about you? And how is God speaking to you about your participation in this world that he loves and is restoring? Let's pray. Jesus, as we process all that Paul says in this passage, would you speak to us and challenge us? For those of us that haven't yet found a home in you, that are only just hearing that dormant cry of a human being looking for someone to care for it, help us to find you. For those of us who are experiencing and wrestling with our own brokenness and wondering just how you feel about us, Help us to grasp again your all-consuming grace, your furious passion for us. For those of us that are wrestling with this world and our part to play, help us to become aware of all sorts of possibilities around us. For some of us, there's this passion for a specific area, maybe Littleton, maybe Guatemala, maybe to the ends of the earth. For some of us, a passion for this particular thing, Perhaps for some of us, we're just so angry at slavery in the world. So mindful of the number of orphans that don't have enough to eat. So aware of the way the planet is being ravaged. Help us to find our thing, our part to play. And give us wisdom. Amen. Would you stand with me? We're just going to sing this third verse. Of, this is my father's world. This is my Father's world Oh, let me ne'er forget That though the wrong seems off so strong God is a ruler yet This is my Father's world satisfied earth and heavenly one 
Father's world. And I will not be afraid. I will not be afraid. This is my Father's world. My Father's As we leave this week, some takeaways for you. If you are unaware that you have a father who loves you, that is the Christian story. You are loved. If you are in that story and have just got to a point of saying, God, is there a new thing for me? Are you just fed up of this broken vessel that constantly seems to get it wrong? It seems like Paul would say to us this, you are continually loved by this father who loves you intimately, not in this formal way, but in this beautifully informal way, loves you as a parent loves a small child that keeps slipping on the steps, keeps falling over, but constantly wants to get back up. And perhaps you're wondering what your part to play in the world is. And the thing I love about South is this deep passion to be a community that our city and world would miss. It's what drives our food bank that gets to feed families from all over the world. It's what drives the partnerships with all the different organizations and missionaries. So there's always something to be involved in. Or maybe you're called to start something. There's something that you're so passionate about, you would say, I just have to get working in this area. Then perhaps God's call is simply to get working in this world that isn't disposable, but is constantly being renewed and one day will be renewed completely. If you'd like to open your hands to receive this benediction, let me share this with you. Jesus, Lord of time, hold us in your eternity. Jesus, image of God, travel with us the life of faith and bring transformation. Jesus, friend of sinners, heal the brokenness of our world Jesus, Lord of tomorrow, draw us into your future. And may the blessing of Father, Son, and Spirit be with each of you now and forevermore. Amen. If God is working in your life through this ministry, join us by partnering with us. You can give online at southfellowship.org give. And thanks for listening. We hope you have a great rest of your day.